Welcome to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. I'm Caitlin and I'm PI's Campaigns Officer. Hi. And I'm Elliot Bendinelli and I'm PI's Corporate Exploitation Lead. So we've been working at PI on competition for a few years now. We've been involved in a number of mergers, basically trying to get big tech companies to not absorb and swallow more tech companies. We've worked, for example, on Meta trying to buy Jiffy, and we've also looked at Google trying to buy Fitbit. More recently, we've been working on Amazon trying to buy iRobot, the company that produced Roombas, those little devices that clean your house automatically. So today we wanted to talk with Denny, a competition expert, to explore a little bit this relation between big tech companies, competition, and the impact on consumers. Breaking in to say this is future Caitlin, though past Caitlin by the time you listen to this. We listened back to the recording and either we'd cut out a definition or we never explained some of the acronyms we used. So you will hear me throughout popping up occasionally to either explain something we didn't think was entirely clear or to elucidate on an acronym. So I'm Denny Manzari and I'm an Associate Professor in Competition Law and Policy at UCL Laws. I'm also the co-director of the UCL Center for Law Economics and Society and co-editor of a research handbook in Competition Law and Data Privacy that should be out in 2024 and which has also contribution from Privacy International. Amazing. Okay. So I guess the first question is, how is competition relevant to tech? (laughs) Yeah. Well, competition is very relevant to tech because there is no competition or very little competition in tech. When we refer to tech, of course, we have in mind the big tech industry. And it's an interesting story how we arrived at this phenomenon of lack of competition, both in the market and lack of competition for the market. So the crux of the concern that was identified very, very late is that digital sectors tend inherently towards concentration. Because they tend inherently towards concentration, we have some market structures in our economy that are populated by only a handful of huge and powerful big tech giants. So we see excessive concentration in online search, of course, social media, digital advertising, mobile operating system, app stores, online marketplace, mostly dominated by Amazon, a highly technology consumer hardware market. So even where competition does exist in these digital markets, this is frequently between a very small subset of the five largest digital companies that we refer to collectively as GAFAM, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft. So we have come to a conclusion that we have three key characteristics of the digital economy that account both for lack of competition and call for different forms of intervention. We have economies of scale and economies of scope. Especially economies of scope is a key reason for the emergence of some digital ecosystems whereby large digital companies, think again Amazon, can provide a host of complementary products and services in addition to their core business activities. So think of Amazon started as an e-bookstore and it now is active in areas as diverse as cloud computing to e-commerce and smart home devices. It is trying to sort of win the race in the internet of things, emerging markets. So we have this rise of uh, digital ecosystems facilitated by economies of scope. But we also have accumulation and use of data on consumer behavior. And this is problematic, right, for the many reasons you have highlighted in your very influential work. But also from a competition perspective, it constitutes a very high barrier to entry into digital markets. You might be an entrepreneur, have an amazing idea about launching an app that will make us adopt healthier eating or exercise habits. You want to target a specific set of consumers to which this app would be useful, but you lack 
that data on consumer behavior. So it is a high barrier to entry in markets. And it permits this large accumulation and use of data. It improves incumbents to improve the quality of the products on the one hand and to achieve more effective monetization through then targeted advertising strategies. And then of course, access to commercially sensitive data may also facilitate self-preferencing strategies by vertically integrated incumbents. Vertical integration is where a company owns, to a greater or lesser extent, the front and or the back of the supply chain for their products. So when we talk about competition law, we do not only have in mind the final consumer, the consumer that wears the Fitbit, for example, but we also think of business users. So think, for example, third-party sellers on Amazon, right? There is an investigation on unfair practices of Amazon vis-a-vis its third-party sellers. There is empirical evidence that Amazon wants a product by third-party seller becomes particularly popular. Amazon will try to copy this product and sell it. It has the ability also to sell some products below cost. So we're also interested not only in the final consumer, but also the business user, because some companies are in an avoidable trading partner, right? So as an app developer, you need access to either Google, Android ecosystem to reach consumers or to the iOS one, right? You have two ecosystems there. If you are a small seller, you might not have the money the means, the knowledge to set up your own online store. And even if you do set it up, right, maybe it will not be as visible as if you go through the Amazon e-commerce. So Amazon is a sort of the modern highway, right, of e-commerce. And uh, of course, someone would argue that Tesco and Sainsbury's, right, have their also their own private labels and they may also develop private labels in reaction to some products that are becoming very, very popular, but you can shop around the high street, whereas Amazon is the high street. And this is actually the the concern here. And of course, the companies will tell you, but you know, you can multi-home. Multi-homing is, I mean, to be honest, pretty much what it sounds like. It's when users tend to use several completing platforms, business users selling things on Amazon and Etsy and their own website, and end users, so people using Twitter and Mastodon and Blue Sky all at the same time. Evidence shows that when you multi-home, you may lose some personal data. There might be some technical barriers. So there are also a lot of barriers on multi-homing. And you end up in a situation where both as a consumer, but also as a business user, you may get trapped into an ecosystem. So this rise of ecosystems, this moving away from just thinking of markets that are operating in a siloed fashion to the larger picture of ecosystems is a key sort of focal point of research. And this is what creates very, very limited scope for competition for the market. And the fact that these barriers means that these markets are not freely contestable. I'd love to build on the ecosystem thing you were talking about, because one thing for me that is striking is that these ecosystems and the vendors locking that companies like Meta or Apple deploys, it's built on purpose. It's not something that's inherited to like tech companies. And for me, like one of the earlier example was that Facebook was actually built using the data from MySpace because MySpace had made its service interoperable, which meant that Facebook could just plug into it, have some sort of compatibility layer, and it was just much easier for people to move from one service to the other. Exactly. Acting as gatekeepers and actually building, let's say, the gatekeepers blocks, right, allows these platforms to control access, right, who gets into the ecosystem and charge high fees. So there you've got the Epic Games, Apple Epic Games battle, Apple charging 30% fees on app developers, the ability to manipulate rankings or prominence, and the ability to control reputation, and generally the ability to not only control, but they are making the rules of the game. So we refer to them as gatekeepers, but also they're orchestrators, right? And they sit at these sort of powerful multi 
product webs that drive customer locking. So if you think of a mobile device, you're locked in with its operating systems, its apps and services, and they orchestrate these multi-actor ecosystems. And this has wider spillover effects, right? On the on a sort of more direct level, yes, it might create new challenges for competition authorities, for data protection authorities that need to collaborate and work. It brings into the game technology specialists. But if we move away from the world of competitive dynamics and lack of competition and these sort of concerns, it has wider spillover effects about the way our societies work about a power and the way the power is dispersed in modern economies and democracy, of course. And this is something that, interestingly, the General Court of the European Union in the Google Android case, it acknowledged that privacy is a quality parameter of competition. And it said it's a crucial element for a pluralistic democracy. Right? So I think we have moved in a more sort of mature phase, this sort of interaction of competition law and data in digital markets and how they facilitate digital market power, the rise of digital market power and dominance and how it leads to lack of sort of contestability. It started off, of course, with the Cambridge Analytical scandal and the work there of data protection and privacy and NGOs all the way to the Facebook German case that is about non-price exploitation which was a very novel theory of harm, all the way now to the reasoning of the courts that say it's not just a parameter of competition, data quality, but also it is important for a pluralistic democratic society. When we interact with digital platforms, we are uh, not only consumers giving away data for free, or not for free exactly, in exchange of products or services, but we are also citizens. So when it comes to monopolies, like how do you spot them? Is it a, you know, when you see it kind of standard, because it seems to me very obvious that the the companies that you've mentioned are monopolies, but like what are the rules around what counts? Yeah. So there is a process of sort of market definition that can be quite myopic when it comes to digital markets, because we have focused on defining the relevant markets on a so-called SNP test, which is if a price of product A goes up by, let's say, as 5%, will consumers switch to substitute or will they stick to this product and be happy to pay? But how do you define markets when the products are offered for free? And so that was one reason for many, many sort of cases falling below the radar I think it was the attention on concentration, right? It started years ago with Barack Obama's special, I think, advisory, economic advisory, looking at concentration generally in the US economy, and then looking at what role the big tech companies have played in what we see in our economy, excessive levels of concentration. So I think we started from more a macro level sort of picture, and then going to the micro-industrial economics. And it started with very influential reports, uh, the Stigler report in the US, the Furman report in the UK, where it tried to identify the reasons, these three reasons I said in the beginning, economies of scale, scope, data, the role of data, and this sort of ecosystem at power that leads in a winner-takes-it-all dynamic that is very, very difficult to challenge. I think the question here is not that they are monopolies. We know that they are but it's also if the harms, if the sort of self-preferencing that Google did and Google search, can it withstand scrutiny by the courts as a new theory of harm? So it was more about getting more creative, right? And coming forward with new theories of harm that could fit within Article 102 or Section 2 of the Sherman Act or the Competition Act. Article 102 is part of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union and is one of the foundational parts of the EU's competition legal regime. The Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 is the US federal antitrust law. The Competition Act 1998 is the UK's competition law. So it's about the role of leaders working in collaboration with NGOs and the civil society in 
thinking outside the box because the German Facebook case, it is all about thinking outside the box, right? Yes, it is problematic because Facebook is actually, once you agree on the terms and conditions, it is sort of, you know, a godfather situation, as I say to the students, you know, it's an offer you cannot refuse, right? You cannot say, oh, I'm going to share data. I, can, I will play this game. It wasn't quite uh, straightforward that your data would be than used for other purposes. I have a question, I think, that is kind of related to that definition. I think we, we haven't necessarily talked so much about like how is the lack of competition can become a problem for consumers and linked to that and to recent events, you know, I want to be the devil's advocate for a second here, but how do you make the distinction between a company that a, provides a service that's just better and that consumers want? And at what point does it turn into dominance? And for me, like the best example is the ongoing case between Google search and the US government. Google search, when it came into the market, was just groundbreaking and a lot of people adopted it really quickly just because it was a good product. Now we're 20 years later and the situation is, is very different and Google is basically an advertising company and not just a search engine. So at what point do we make this distinction? Is it when we start seeing the harms for the consumers or the, all of this ven uh, vendor locking mechanism? I'm kind of interested in your opinion. It is a very fine line and it is the most, that's why Article 102 or the monopolization offense and the Sherman Act is the most difficult area of antitrust because there is always a fine line between meeting competition and beating competition, right? So when is pricing below cost, anti-competitive, what sort of measures of cost you are going to adopt, when is self-preferencing problematic? And we have dual standards, right? So you can only be caught under the prohibition of Article 102 of the Treaty of the Function of the European Union, if you are a dominant, if you're a non-dominant company, you can go and price below cost or engage in self-preferencing, right? But you reach a point where your market power is not contestable and it, it can be also exerted in adjacent markets. So Google here is using its dominance as a search engine in order to extend this dominance into an adjacent market of its own sort of comparison shopping service in this way, not allowing competing comparison shopping services to sort of have a fair deal. And this is an example, right? And at the beginning, it was, oh, is it tying? Is it bundling? Is it, what is this sort of, how can we fit this practice into existing blocks? And we came up with a new theory of harm of self-preferencing that was tested, but it was very difficult for the commission to carry forward this self-preferencing theory of harm that it did not exist. We have a similar one with margin squeezing telecommunications again, but the treaty rules are quite open-ended and allow, so we don't need to repeal. We've come to a point where we have agreed that we don't need to repeal the treaty rules on competition. They are sufficiently malleable to accommodate distinct forms of harm, but it takes time and it took many years with Google search. And the problem, and with Intel and other cases in Article 102, and that's why we have also resorted to Exanta regulation addressed to gatekeepers offering core network services in the DMA. Exante is Latin for before the event, an ex-ante regulation is designed to prevent companies from doing something bad rather than ex-post regulation, which is to address something after it has happened. DMA, or the EU's Digital Markets Act, is an EU regulation that aims to make the digital economy fairer and more contestable. Because it took many, many years from opening the case against Google, to the uh, statement of objections, to the fine, to the appeals. And, you know, by then you might just see dead bodies, right? As we said, we don't want to like, there is a complainant of Intel or there is a complainant of Google. And then by the time the case has reached the courts, by the time we have a verdict, the competitors have disappeared, right? So companies know that it will take ages <laughs> for the European institutions, the commission and the courts to deliver the verdict and the judgment. And, and it is a cost of litigation that they have the deep pockets to incorporate, right? So then 
it raises questions of, you know, of justice delayed, is justice denied? Uh, these are fast moving markets, collecting evidence and making sure as a European Commission, it, is, it carries a huge reputational cost to lose in Luxembourg. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of resources, and these are fast moving markets. Maybe we need to bring more drastic tools of Exanta regulation, some blacklisted prohibition, not applicable to all, but to gatekeepers. So you talked about expanding the definition of harm, like what counts as harm and what's changed, I guess. So, yeah, we would look also only in a reduction, sort of, that was the myopic Chicago school, a classical school of economics that would look at price, loss of quality. We're interested in price, quality, also innovation is important. But it was very, very much focused on the price dimension of competition. And this is something that cannot work in the digital economy because it is it is offered uh, for free. But also the way, just to give you another another example, so in acquisitions that companies make. So if you think what what companies are doing, actually the big tests are buying competition, right? So think uh, the iRobot can be seen, for example, Amazon wanting to acquire iRobot for 1.7 billion as another episode in its way to become dominant in the in our house sort of ecosystem, Internet of Things, right? Sometimes they try to buy technology, IP or talent, but the most common case is they're trying to buy market position. So they bought Ring in 2018, Blink the camera 2017, every technologies. So they develop sort of door security cameras, voice assistant. And then we have the iRobot deal. Now, this iRobot deal can combine Amazon's strong position at the retail level, because almost in the UK, 90% of UK shoppers use Amazon and uh, half of them have now Amazon Prime, right? Uh, with a leading position in vacuum manufacturing markets. So there you have a vertical effects theory of harm. And vertical mergers, again, would fly below the radar, right? Because we were like, okay, but vertical mergers... They're not competitors, right? Amazon is not a competitor of a company that manufactures automated vacuum cleaners. Why should we care? Or Facebook, Instagram, right? Well, Instagram was not seen as a sort of a competing social network at the time. Um, Yes, this acquisition, it's fine. Instagram is just another way of popularizing your photos and sharing them with friends or as Facebook is different and Facebook has promised I will not, you know, mingle the data. Yes, perhaps we should allow this acquisition uh, to go ahead. And then, so a lot of these acquisitions fell over the radar because of their vertical nature, right? And now we are in a stage where Meta Giphy, for example, right, or Illumina Grail got blocked. All these are vertical mergers, right? And I think if it hadn't been for the central role of data, they wouldn't perhaps capture that attention. So what happens here? The question is, would Amazon give their competitors the same sort of terms of selling, right? If if Amazon is an unavoidable trading platform for iRobot's competitors, will they be given a fair chance to compete, right? This is sort of what competition on on the merits is, is all about? Or will they find themselves dropping down the page or deciding that, oh, I must need to pay Amazon more in advertising fees if I want my product to keep the same level of prominence it had before the merger, right? So the first sort of the immediate actor here that could be potentially harmed by this merger is the smart vacuum competitors, okay? But we can take this step one step further and think also more traditional horizontal theories of harm. What if Amazon bundles this product with Alexa and it creates a, a bundle because it wants to create a portfolio of smart home products? Will these be considered sort of competing horizontally, right? Could they be also be put in the same 
sort of bundle because we know that Amazon thinks more long term. So how would this merger be assessed in the past? We would need to define some relevant markets. And of course, this is a manufacturer of smart vacuum cleaners. We would look at the merging party's position. We would see that iRobot has a very strong position in smart vacuum cleaners, right? But Amazon would have a zero market share in such a market because its strong market position is downstream in adjacent markets of smart home products, smart speakers, connected TVs. So maybe the competition authority would have decided that this is a merger between different levels of the supply chain, different relevant markets, perhaps this vertical merger is not problematic. And here is where we start to miss the wood uh, for the trees. And this is the siloed approach, right? So you look at them, you say, okay, what can go wrong in this merger? I mean, Amazon is not producing uh, smart vacuum cleaners, but you miss the other products in this more smart home uh, that are part of Amazon's strategy and which can also strengthen its market position and market power in this adjacent market. Amazon calls its its membership system, Amazon Prime and Alexa, the flywheels, right? So Amazon considers these as the flywheels. So it has a significant presence in smart home devices. So maybe the competition authorities should see also what is the effect on competition in this market as well. And this is something that the commission is looking at. I think like to build on that, because so PI has worked on the iRobot uh, Amazon merger. And so we've pretty much tried to do this and look at like the different markets in which this acquisition would, would give Amazon more power. And for us, there are kind of two type of arms. One is very direct and it's like, am I able to get these products and their the competition on the same level? So if I go on Amazon, is the Roomba going to be the first product, whatever I type, or uh, are there going to be other products in terms of pricing? Is there going to be some sort of discrimination for other manufacturers? Amazon can also price uh, Roomba below cost. Right? Yeah, exactly. That is the Amazon's the Amazon's antitrust paradox influential paper, right? Engaged in a sort of a predatory behavior and gain an advantage. But that is the siloed approach, right? That's the narrow one. Yeah. But then there is the approach which is much closer to us, which is the privacy and data, personal data angle. So with this acquisition, Amazon is getting their hands on a lot of historical data from Roomba users. And potentially they're getting access to things such as, you know, maps of your houses, photos of your houses. And this is data that can be used in other markets. So it's kind of an indirect correlation, but Amazon is a marketplace. They have an advertising department and, you know, what would prevent them from using the photos or videos of inside your house and see, oh, uh, it looks like their table is broken. Maybe I should advertise them with a new table or a new couch. And so really diving into this, the, the privacy angle and how they can strengthen their position in other markets through this acquisition. And I think also what you highlight and it's something that in competition law we don't do, though we started doing recently, is think about different also consumers and how these might be impacted. There might be a vulnerable consumer in a household that might be able to detect a wheelchair, as you said, right? And there is where things can get very sort of problematic in terms of personalized pricing and targeted advertising. Now, also, this is where we sit at the intersection of competition law, consumer law, and data privacy, right? And it is a question whether competition law, that was a Facebook sort of case where competition law should address, right? Is it the law of everything, right? And what is the role of consumer law and, and data privacy? And I think the reason why competition authorities were on the driving seat for quite some time is because we have competition law the past 50 or so years. We have developed institutions that are well-equipped, sophisticated enough. And we have a sort of the personnel in most of the jurisdictions that are able to work on these cases, whereas consumer protection agencies, data protection agencies are more recent phenomenon, right? And perhaps the agencies haven't yet built this institutional capacity 
that is required. Of course, we have some very powerful regulators, like in Ireland, of course, because it is the headquarters of a number of, of companies in, in big tech. And we have a lot of fines that have been issued lately against Meta on data protection, violation grounds, but it is a matter of sort of institutional capacity. Also, interestingly, at a conference, someone mentioned that, you know, Alexa has also access to emotions, right? So when you order a product via Alexa, it can infer a lot of valuable information about your mental state and or how desperate, right, you need a product. And then uh, it can apply a different price, right? It is actually what Uber is doing when you're trying to order an Uber via the app and it's raining cats and dogs in London. And of yeah. course, you know, Uber knows you're desperate in order to get into the yeah, tax yeah. and Uber Or you just apply. get out of a concert and there are uh, 10,000 exactly. people with you all trying to get home. All trying to get. So it is a fine line, you know, of whether this is a sort of a manipulation of your state and behavioral state or as a matter of competition or I need to put more drivers out there. Putting more drivers out there would mean that the price not with fault, that is what you would expect. <laughs> but it's the other way around when you're trying to order an Uber when it's raining. Now, the Amazon iRobot is, we have divergent views, right? So the CMA, for example, did not at all investigate the interoperability issue with Alexa, right? So these two aspects that the commission was worried about, the deal and the CMA did not investigate, was reducing the interoperability with Alexa of rival companies and Amazon's ability to use iRobot's user data to gain advantage against rival online marketplaces. And that is something that you've highlighted in the report. But the interoperability issue was not investigated. And this seems to me at least a very, very plausible theory of harm, smart home platforms, access to, to iRobot, and whether Alexa and iRobot would enjoy some, some gatekeeper power. Now, the data theory of harm, and you've provided a lot of evidence, and I loved your mapping of the house and how the data can be extracted. You can see all of that on the website, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think your, your most valuable piece of work there is the inferences one can make from data. It is, and it ought to be, I think, speculative, right? If we are to think outside the box, we need to sort of stretch a bit our boundaries of thought and of imagination too much, what these uh, companies are, are doing when they're buying market power and market position. But because it is more speculative, I think that is why the commission agreed that this needs a more sort of in-depth analysis than the one that can be done in phase one. So I think the commission did recognize this ecosystem approach uh, where separate activities are linked to each other and one reinforces each other's rights so because in ecosystems, you've got a more dynamic interaction, right? And you can see here the story unfolding, oh, the internet of things and smart homes is the next frontier that we want to concur so let's start with door security and ring and cameras and um, echo and voice assistance and then get deeper sort of in what happens into a household and acquiring iRobot that can detect Mac devices, Alexa can provide valuable information, lay out products that you might need, who lives in this house, age, is it a toddler, is it an elderly social status? Is it a big house? Is it in a nice area of a city? Who is living in this house? And then, uh, of course, Amazon Prime and Alexa being the sort of the flywheels on which this sort of ecosystem is able to sort of flourish. But the fact that the CMA stopped short of a phase two investigation may tell us something about, you know, the current state of collaboration between the CMA and the, and the UK and maybe Microsoft. Someone can speculate that the Microsoft Activision merger was blocked and this didn't go down very, very well. You know, the UK is not open for business, for innovation. You know, a lot of foreign to foreign mergers have been blocked in the UK post-Brexit. Microsoft Activision, Meta Giphy, 
Illumina Pack Bio. And here we have a different picture where the commission is acting more aggressively with Illumina and now with iRobot. And it is more aggressive ordering a sort of phase two investigation. Whereas in the CMA, I think reading the phase one document, I think it was a more of a superficial analysis of Amazon's incentives to foreclose, right? Because under the merger regime, you not only look at the ability, the static play of the market, but also you need to see through the crystal ball, right, of what are the incentives in the future, right? You need sort of to build this counterfactual scenario, and this requires a forward-looking analysis. And it seems to me that the CMA did a very very good job in the sort of a static analysis, but it might have a bit neglected or look at the more superficial way Amazon's incentives to foreclose competitors. And this can be a bit unhelpful because the digital markets unit will consider Amazon's designation under the new digital markets competition and consumer bill. We'll have to see how this will play out. So I think we made it clear that it's kind of a poor state of affairs right now. And that like from a consumer perspective, when you're looking at just the state of the market and the monopolies that exist, and it's great that there is a movement and then there is a awakening from regulators and we're taking different approaches to look at these cases of acquisition and mergers. But my question is, you know, what do the solutions look like? What is kind of the end game and the future we're looking at, both in terms of, you know, what can the regulators do and, you know, what can other instruments do to break these monopolies? I know there are yeah, a lot of talks about, you know, breaking Meta, breaking Google. Is that something that regulators should do? I think the Exanta regulatory framework that is in mm. place is the response to calls for breaking up. So we're not breaking up big techs, we are regulating them. We have identified a number of behaviors that some of them are now official sort of competition can withstand scrutiny, can fit the sort of the category of competition law violations. Actually, DMA codifies Google Android, Google Search, it's a sort of a codification of the case law, so part of it. And we apply this regulatory framework ex ante. At the moment you're designated as a gatekeeper, you really should stop doing all these things. You should share data related to rankings, for example, on front terms. So there are a lot of do's and don'ts in the DMA. So the answer is no, we're not breaking them. We are regulating them. Once they qualify as gatekeepers and once we have defined what is this court network service? So we now have as gatekeepers, the first designation happened a week ago from the European Commission, the first companies that were designated under the DMA. So we've got Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Byte, Dance, Meta, and Microsoft, and a number of core platform services in intermediation, video search, and browsers. Now, it is a brave step, and the digital markets unit and the UK will you know, follow the same sort of approach of ex-ante regulation, as we say, pro-competition regulation. Now, this has a long history. It has been done before in uh, sort of natural monopolistic industries like telecoms, right? So when Mm -hmm. telecoms were liberalized, we, in order to facilitate and make, in order to make markets contestable and facilitate the entry of British telecoms competitors or France Telecom or whoever was the incumbent, right? We created a regulatory apparatus of a number of sort of obligations in the framework directive for telecommunications in order to allow firms to climb up the ladder of investment when it comes to broadband and to be able to compete, right? So we started off with some access requirements to the local loop in telecoms. And this is actually mirrored a lot in the DMA. The question, though, is if the DMA is future-proof enough, mm. right? Because we are talking about 
very, very dynamic industries. So how often do we need to redo the exercise of designation? Right. So, uh, for example, in the telecoms, the regulator had to define markets every three years to see which of the companies enjoy significant, as we call it, market power. That is an exercise, right? And it managed to withstand the test of time. And we now see competition in telecoms, in mobile. Now, with the DMA, a lot of us have voiced concerns about whether this is a very inflexible tool. It will be under-inclusive sometime or over-inclusive. So they may catch practices that mm, maybe they shouldn't be caught or Hmm. they may be under-inclusive and miss practices. So what are you going to do? You're going to go to parliament every now and then and repeal the DMA regulation, which is a lengthy process. Will there be sort of accompanying guidelines? And at the same time, we have also revision of the Article 102 guidelines for exclusionary conduct. So we have these two developments running in parallel. And the question is, within the European Commission, how well these two divisions, one overlooking the unit overlooking the the gatekeepers and the unit overlooking the rest of the companies who may acquire gatekeeper status, will be able to work together and identify early on. And how often will the designation take place and will there be companies that fall under the dark radar or core platform services? So this is, I think, the elephant in the room here, how future-proof this regime will be in mm. very dynamic industries that, unlike the telecommunications, which was all about, of course, uh, the mobile telephony changed a lot and because it created a sort of a uh, and broadband the revolution. So none of us now has landlines or uses landlines, right? But we're talking about more easily defined markets, right? Yeah. But here with the sort of ecosystem, things can be a bit more complicated. Yeah, I think like from our perspective, we're we're fairly like we're looking forward to March of 2024 because that's when it's going to enter into force. And we've been yes. advocating a lot to get, you know, out of or concerns reflected in this text. And we're hoping that by the time it comes into force and the companies that are listed have to provide the information that is required by the DMA, we'll be able to discover a certain number of things in their practices, again, related to personal data and privacy. We have some expectations, but I agree with your concerns in terms of, you know, is this, is this future proof? And it's interesting also to see because the Data Act The Data Act is an EU law aimed at clarifying who can create value from data and under which conditions. It's also coming into play and how actually this access to data will be regulated. And this is something I will be looking in my research the next year, sort of this FRAND requirement, this fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory access to engine results, uh, data or data important to third-party users, this will fall under negotiating regime overlooked by the commissions. So the com- it's not a prescriptive, okay, how you're going to share it. So it's interesting to see how, because it's one thing to impose an obligation and a completely different thing to see how this obligation is going to be implemented and taken forward. That seems to me like a natural place to, and it's a good kind of <laughs> precedent, <laughs> moment. yeah. But is there anything that you haven't mentioned that you wanted to mention? I think the role of the NGOs, and I was reading your very interesting contribution to our handbook with Maria Neda on the role, on the, on, the, on, the, on the efforts you have done to get involved as a third party, interested third party in, in ongoing investigations and interventions, but creating, you know, mobilizing. Because I think that us consumers face an important collective action problem. I mean, there has been so much lobbying by big tech, they have managed to extend this sort of lobbying efforts even to academia and influence policy in a variety of ways. And it is a problem of collective action that consumers just cannot organize their interests as effectively as a handful of players. And also it's in consumer inertia. And if you ask the consumers, you know, most of them will feel very, very sort of cozy trapped in an Amazon ecosystem, you know, why? But everything is so 
interoperable within the ecosystem. So, you know, it is, I think this is the interoperability is the most important, I think, and being able to have also horizontal, to enjoy horizontal interoperability will be an important win for us consumers. But yes, I was thinking about the collective action and the fact that, you know, we are we're citizens and consumers. And I think that most competition authorities now in the form of, you know, in the public calls for evidence or market studies, I think they do involve the views increasingly of NGOs. So what you're saying is when people see us put out our little petitions, they, sh- they should sign them. They, they are important. They do matter. <laughs> they do matter. Yes, they do matter. They do matter. The work you do is very important and it's extremely difficult to mobilize and to explain, actually, especially in these highly technical realm, big tech is operating, why this is. And also, I think what would be very interesting is there are certain market studies lately on how the design or the default choices right on a website may actually lure consumers into actions that they would not have necessarily taken if the design wasn't so so uh, faulty from this from the start. So I think there is important work now being done on design, right? And the default choices when you buy online or engage with any other good or service via an online channel. Dark process. Dark patterns, exactly. And this is not, you know, it is a competition law issue again because, oh yeah, you've got the market power and you're able to impose this or you're an unavoidable trading partner and yeah, you are. But it's more consumer protection and data protection, right? So saying that in an industry there is lack of competition, and I think that is the most important lesson learned from the past six, seven years, does not mean that, oh, competition at all, competition law and policy is the only available tool to address issues. So you need a synergetic approach between competition law, data protection, and you need also technologically astute personnel to be involved early on, both in the investigation phase, but most importantly in the remedies phase. So in the, in the global sandbox, we are sort of concerned that Google might be writing right, the rules of the game in a cookie-less, really cookie-free world that is trying to promote. And sometimes remedies can also go bad. So now in the Google Android so Google would offer the Android operating system for free, right? But the handset manufacturers, they had to pre-install Google Search, right? And Google Chrome, now they will be charging a fee, but no more the obligation to pre-install Google Chrome. So this, oh yes, great. So I'm not trapped in the default uh, with a Google Chrome and Google Search uh, pre-installed on my mobile device, but now the handset manufacturer pays a fee. So maybe this will be passed, or not maybe, definitely this will be passed on to app developers and consumers. So this is, you know, tricky in terms of sort of remedy design. So yes, the product was offered for free in exchange of bolstering market power in Chrome, but on the other hand, Remedy now requiring them, okay, you can charge, but no pre-installation may also have some negative effects, not in terms of choice, but in terms of price, right? So that would bring us back to the more price-centric approach of competition law. I think essentially we could keep talking about this forever because it's fascinating. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> um, it's, it's concerningly fascinating. It is fascinating. And I think it requires a lot of reading, I think, in business strategies. I don't think one can understand, you know, Amazon's incentives to foreclose. And I only use Amazon. I don't have anything against Amazon. <laughs> I'm not, you know, a hired buyer. I have, yeah, but I'm just using it because it relates to your recent work. Yeah. I think you need to delve into business strategy. So we know uh, my colleague Anislian has done important work some years ago on platforms, ecosystems, looking at literature in, in business strategy in order to understand, to come with a workable definition of what is an ecosystem. Competition authorities, however, and legislators are slow to adopt these new concepts, right? Because it's one thing theorizing and developing a concept in the academic literature or with policymakers and then 
traveling with this concept all along to the legislature and to the courts. So I think that law, uh, unfortunately, has been very reactive to changes. And, you know, the companies will always be one step ahead. And I think, you know, we work in a competition authority and you might have important sort of motivation and drivers to work for the public good, but then eventually you you need to win the case, you need to make sure that the evidence you have will withstand scrutiny in courts. Uh, whereas working for an NGO allows you to think outside the box and highlight some theories of harm that a competition authority, especially a competition authority in a small member state or not well equipped to deal with these issues might not be brave enough to put forward. Cool, so I think we wrap it up there, lest we go another hour, because I think we would. (laughs) But thank you so much for your time, I really appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Gus was pretty disappointed he couldn't be here with us this week. He misses you all very much. He loves doing the podcast. But I think Elliot did a great job. So I was very glad that he could step in. And, you know, he's part of the competition project. He's been part of the competition project for a long time. And he leads the portfolio that it sits within. So he was a particularly excellent co-host this week. But yeah, so thanks for listening. Remember, you can tell us what you think of the podcast by visiting us at pvcy.org forward slash TP survey. We're probably going to take that survey down soon to change some of the questions, you know, rejig some things. So if you want to get your opinion in, it's probably a good time for that. To anyone who's already filled out the survey, we really, really do appreciate the time that you took and the answers you gave us. They've been really helpful and some of them have been very lovely. So thank you for that. You can sign up to be the first to learn more about our work at pvcy.org forward slash pod sign up and we'll include some links to relevant articles and information in the description wherever you're listening or on our website at pvcy.org forward slash techpill. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. Podcast produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International. Music courtesy of Sepia or Sepia, which is what Gus says. We've never agreed on how it's actually set. (laughs) Thank you again for listening. (laughs) 